I'm your host, Sung Soo, and I'm thrilled to be here today talking to all of you about Atomic Mass Games' inaugural offering, Marvel Crisis Protocol. Before we dive into what MCP is, I wanted to take a second and introduce myself and give the ideology of this podcast. Across the Bifrost will be a thoughtfully produced, high-quality podcast about Marvel Crisis Protocol. Each episode will be talking about different aspects of MCP, whether it's tactics, team building, new releases, or focusing on different play formats. In addition, we'll be looking at all the different Marvel worlds, providing context to those who might not be familiar with all of them. There's a ton of worlds out there, whether we're talking about the MCU, the comics, the Netflix series, and even the comics themselves diverge quite a bit and have different story arcs. We'll also be interviewing guests in a hope to provide additional insight and just to get a different point of view and perspective from different places around the U.S. and hopefully the world. As far as myself, again, my name is Sung Soo, like a sung a song and a boy named Soo. I've been a longtime tabletop gamer starting with Warhammer Fantasy Battle 3rd Edition. I loved my dwarfs and was happy not having a magic phase for ages. As times change, so did I, and most recently I've been playing and creating content focused on competitive play in the War Machine and Hordes realm. Statistical Convergence, Tangential with Sung Soo, and Tactical Tips were all a blast to make, and I like to think I've become known, in that community at least, for creating thoughtful and high-quality podcasts. My main goal with Across the Bifrost is to keep that trend going and to ensure that I'm providing entertainment, education, and inspiration for all of my listeners. Alright, on to the fun stuff now. Today we'll be taking a high-level look at Marvel Crisis Protocol. I'll be making some bad analogies and we'll try to compare it to existing games in the market where it's applicable. I'll also briefly go over mechanics I was excited about. In the end, we'll even talk about mechanics I'm kind of reserving judgment for until I get it on the table a little more. So what is Marvel Crisis Protocol? By now, I'm sure you've at least heard the name. Announced at Gen Con 2019, it's Atomic Mass Games' first offering, and it looks amazing. It's a skirmish-style game in which players assemble teams and duke it out to see who's the last hero standing, or who can achieve their mission objectives the quickest. Before we go any further, I'm going to take a moment and say I'm going to use the word hero to describe both heroes and villains. It's 2019, I don't judge, and after all, everyone is somebody's hero, aren't they? Now, Atomic Mass Games is doing something I absolutely adore here, and that's their rules are free online. You can find them at atomicmassgames.com rules. Because of that, I'm not going to go super in-depth into any one rule or section. My main goal here is to provide a primer for the game, highlight things I thought were cool, and really just give my opinion. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's start with an overview of the game itself. MCP is a game where players are controlling individual heroes. Currently, there are no units of lackeys or units of sharks with lasers. Instead, players are all taking control of characters they know and love from all the Marvel Universe. The game itself is played in a 3x3 table, which is a nice touch to help get action rolling right away. It's an alternating activation game, kind of similar to Guild Ball. You might get punched in the face by Hulk, but at least you'll get a chance to respond before Thor follows up and smashes a car into you. And yes, you can throw cars in this game. There are team tactics cards, which allow multiple heroes to contribute to an individual action, but at its core, the base fundamental of it is I activate a hero, then you get to activate a hero. I'm a huge fan of this activation mechanism and think that they execute it really, really well. The gameplay is fast enough that there isn't a huge amount of downtime as I wait for my turn. There are also enough synergies and unique interactions that planning how and where my team is going to be is paramount to not getting swept off the table. It's not as simple as I activate my closest model to an enemy and I make an attack. There's a lot more depth to it. 
Army building is the next thing that everyone associates with a tabletop game. And in Marvel Crisis Protocol, it's pretty unique. And it's one of the things I really love. It's multifaceted. Each player constructs a roster. And a roster is made up of three things. Ten team members. When I say team members, we're again talking about heroes. By heroes, really, superheroes, supervillains, again, no one judges. Eight team tactics cards. These are the cards I talked about where multiple heroes interact in major ways, and we'll get into those a little bit more later. And then six crisis cards, three of each type, which are used for mission creation. At the start of each game, players begin by creating a mission. A mission is made of player A's crisis extraction card and player B's crisis secure card. Getting control, even if it's only half of each scenario, is amazing. There's a lot of War Machine and Horde scenarios or Age of Sigmar scenarios that I hate playing with certain armies. And this at least lets you mitigate that to some degree. The Crisis cards also dictate the points values the game will be. Points in this game are called Threat. We've only seen a few of the Crisis cards so far, but I have high hopes for a lot of diversity here. Next, after the mission has been formalized, Players select heroes from their 10-person roster that are equal to or less than the threat total of the mission provided. This opens up a huge amount of custom choices tailored to the mission, the table, or even the roster that your opponents brought. It reminds me of like old-school War Machine Active Duty roster or even Magic the Gathering sideboarding. It requires you to know and think about what your opponent is bringing and doing, how you and your heroes are going to interact with the mission and each other. It's incredibly deep and something I really look forward to doing more and more of. I think this portion of the game might help reduce net decking. That's when you take a list off the internet and pilot it yourself. Because there's a lot of subtle nuances you're going to have to know about when to bring certain heroes in and then when heroes aren't necessarily going to be good. It's 100% a skill, and it's a skill that, for whatever reason, I'm really excited to learn and develop. Oh, and did I mention a squad has really no hero construction limits? Red Skull and Captain America, Killmonger and Black Panther, there are no list-building restrictions other than ensuring that you're equal to or less than the threat value that you've assigned via your crisis mission. But you might want to keep team composition in mind, because after your squad is selected, you can choose a squad affiliation. You may only choose one, and it may only be selected if 50% of your squad is of that affiliation. We're talking mutants, avengers, cabal, you get the general idea. These provide a passive benefit, and it's just another layer to add into list building. The last thing you select is up to five team tactics cards. These are the cards I mentioned earlier, which allow multiple heroes to be involved in a single hero's activation. These are even more specific than squad affiliations. One of the leaked ones so far is Ricochet Blast, and it involves Iron Man and Captain America. It's basically an addition to one of Iron Man's normal activation abilities and allows him to shoot his beam off of Captain America. This functionally extends the range, assuming Captain America is within range of Iron Man, and allows you to use line of sight from Captain America. It's a cool way to shoot a beam around a corner and to help keep Iron Man safe from an onslaught the Cap might be able to survive. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about the character cards themselves. They've all been spoiled all over the internet and are really well explained in the rulebook itself. I do want to highlight that each hero has two sides of their card, a healthy and an injured side. Currently a character can't be taken from healthy to knocked out in one go, which is a very nice touch. When a character runs out of stamina, which are functional hit points, they become dazed till the end of a round. A dazed character can't interact or be interacted with, and at the end of the round they go from healthy to injured or from injured to knocked out. We've all had those games that kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth where you get alphaed really early and models that you brought don't get to do anything. This rule, combined with alternating activations, though, means in Marvel Crisis Protocol, a hero will always get to do something at least before they're knocked out. 
It's also really interesting to see how a character changes when they are injured. Crossbones, for example, doesn't really change at all. He has slightly less stamina on his injured side. Captain America, however, gains stamina on his injured side and picks up the ability, I can do this all day, which I love the name of. This ability makes him incredibly hard to remove from the tabletop. Keeping that in mind, I think you need to consider what happens to a character as you injure them. Am I going to be unlocking an ability I don't want an opponent to have right now? It's another subtle layer of the game that rewards thinking and planning as opposed to just brute force smashing. There's a resource in the game as well, and it's called power. You get one power at the start of your turn for each hero on the board. In addition, you also receive one power for every point of stamina you take during enemy attacks. So you can't siege Animanthrix yourself and whip yourself for additional power, but as Captain America or Crossbones or Red Skull gets beat up, they are generating more power, and this normally increases their functionality in some way. Any hero can have up to 10 power on it at a given time, and you can use it actively during your hero's activation or reactively for defensive powers. So I've already mentioned it's an alternating activations game. So what can a character do on an activation? A character has access to four basic common actions every turn. They are move, attack, superpower, and shake. Let's start with one that's had a kind of controversial announcement, and that's movement. Movement in this game is done with a movement tool, very similar to Star Wars Legion or X-Wing. There are three sizes, each has a pivot point in the center. When moving, you place the movement tool touching your hero, and then place your hero anywhere in base contact with that tool. This means you get the base size of the model as an additional movement for those people that are used to War Machine or 40k or Age of Sigmar movements. The character may also move over or through anything that is the same size or smaller than that hero. So why is this controversial? Uh, I don't know if controversial is the right word, and I realize I'm the one that chose that word, but a lot of tabletop gamers are known to have strong opinions, believe it or not. And the movement tool is still, relatively speaking, a new concept. It's a little weird not to be able to walk four inches one way and then two inches the other, but truthfully, so far, the tool lets me quickly see if I can move around the building. It eliminates and reduces the chances that people get extra movement, the dreaded floating tape measure rule that we've run into in so many games. This is one of those rules that for sure, I kind of want to hold judgment on until I play it more. In my testing games, it doesn't feel natural, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just indicative that I haven't used this mechanic a lot before. So I'm curious what you all think of movement sticks. Maybe a lot of you have played Star Wars Legion. Again, I really haven't. So get at me at social media and let me know what you think. Attacks all contain the same basic structure. They all have an attack type, a range, a dice pool, and a cost. These dice pools are made up of custom d8s with the following faces. We have a singular crit, which is always a success on attack or defense and triggers an additional roll. We'll get into more that a little bit more later. There's a wild, which is always a success, whether we're on attack or defense, and can trigger special procs depending on your character's attack. We have two hits, those are only relevant when you're attacking. We have a singular block, which is only relevant when we're defending. We have two blanks on the die, and then we have one failure. So to recap, we have four successes out of eight when we're attacking, and defending has three successes out of eight. So there's a difference of about 12.5%. Before I go any further, I did want to talk about the dice mass of this game. It's incredibly confusing and very complex. I spent more time than I'm willing to admit making spreadsheets and trying to chart this out in a good way for me to convey the dice math easily over a podcast. And quite frankly, I've failed miserably. I'm going to need someone way smarter than I am to do this. And if you happen to be that person, again, get at me on social media. I would love to talk math to you. 
Crits give you that additional die when you roll them. Crits don't explode infinitely. You only ever receive one crit, one additional die per die rolled. So if you roll five dice for an attack, the most crit dice you'll ever be able to get is five. That's assuming every one of them critted on its first roll. But that being said, it does skew the odds a little bit more, right? Each crit we give us gets another die through the same matrix we had before. So it's either 50% or 37.5, depending on whether we're attacking or defending. So I'm going to simplify this a lot, and I realize that it is not an accurate representation but directionally it gives us a sound basis to go from and that is to be about four and a half over eight for successes for attack rolls and 3.4 over eight for defensive rolls that's factoring in the fact that a crit can generate you an additional value again i'm aware that that's a drastic oversimplification but directionally for the sake of giving people like a mean or just something that they can grab onto and move forward with i think it's the easiest way to go what I do feel comfortable saying, though, is that the dice mechanic isn't as robust as War Machine or Hordes. But that doesn't make it a bad mechanic. Yes, it's wildly more variance-based. The standard deviation of five dice attacking to three dice defending is huge. There isn't a quick cheat sheet I can give you to determine if buying another attack or increasing your dice pool via a superpower is clearly a better choice. What I can say is that there are a lot of other elements in the game that players can use to manipulate attack rolls. It honestly reminds me a little bit about Guild Ball, where there isn't much you can do with the initial dice pool itself, but friends, enemies, and terrain, they can all play a part in optimizing different attack lines you can take. The other thing is in a drastic improvement to Guild Ball, there are a lot more rerolls in the Marvel Crisis Protocol world, which again, allow you to smooth out those probability spikes in a negative way, but do make you slightly more inclined to spike in a positive way. Okay, so back to attacking. Range is checked first, and again, like movement, it's kind of obfuscated. Ranges are equal to, in the game, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and they roughly line up to 1, 3, 5, 7, and 10 inches respectively. There are range templates in the starter boxes, and just like the movement tool, it's just going to take a little bit of getting used to. The attack set the dice pool for the attacking player, and the dice pool for the defending player is equal to the relevant defensive stat for the attack type. Earlier, when we broke down the D8s, we mentioned how the dice are kind of inherently favoring attacking to defending by 12.5%. And what I will say is so far playing the game, attacking powers are definitely at a higher dice pool than defensive powers, which is great, again, for moving the game along and making it less grindy. Once dice pools are established, each player rolls. The attacking player counts their number of successes, which again are crit, wild, and hit, compromising of four of the eight faces of a d8, and compared to the defender's successes, which again are crit, wild, and block, composed of three of the eight faces. Each attacking value that is greater than the defender's roll results in one point of stamina damage being done to the defender, noting that the defender can't take more stamina damage than they have left on their card. Again, we mentioned it earlier, but wilds often trigger additional abilities that fit the flavor of attack, making it harder to dodge, or maybe just increasing the amount of damage being done, or additional status elements going on to them. There are also beam attacks and area attacks, which are two unique ways to deal damage to multiple heroes with a single attack. There's a very in-depth timing chart, which I absolutely adore. It really quells any issues that might come up. And with a little bit of thinking and looking at the chart, you can normally figure these things out for yourself. I'm a little afraid that it made attacking sound difficult or time consuming, which it 100% is not. The rules make it super easy to resolve multiple interactions and they don't slow the game down at all. After attacks, the next standard action is superpowers and they kind of fall into three categories. They have active, reactive, and passive. Active powers can be attacks, or they can just impact the table in other ways. Crossbones, for example, can use Haymaker to grant him extra dice on his next attack. 
Reactive powers are powers that are triggered by other things in the game. Captain America can use his vibranium shield reactively to increase his defensive odds whenever he's targeted by an enemy attack. Passive abilities cover things like flying to help you get around and ignore terrain, or power cost reductions, or, or benefits that people get when they're nearby you. They're all fairly intuitive and the structure of three types works pretty well. Lastly, shaking is your last activation option. Shaking allows you to clear one special condition that a hero has. I know I haven't covered any of these conditions, but again, they're all on the cards and they're pretty intuitive. Conditions cover everything from being dazed from Spider-Man's taser webs to bleeding because Baron Zemo is trying to eviscerate you. And that, at a high level, is the game in a nutshell. It's really, really hard to talk about a game quickly and still do it justice. I hope I did okay. Please leave me any feedback on Patreon, Twitter, or Facebook about what I could do better, and maybe even if I did something okay. So to recap, what are the things I love about Marvel Crisis Protocol? The action happens quickly, and it doesn't stop. Because of playing on that 3x3 table, there are no excessive turns of moving or positioning, no endless kiting. You're really forced to engage with your opponent and mission elements quickly. I'm a huge fan of the diversity in roster building. I think that leaves a ton of room for customization and provides personal choices between missions, team selection, and roster selection. I'm really excited to see how diverse lists ends up being. Next up, there are no minions, there are no henchmen. I know some people actually really want them, but personally, if you give me the choice between controlling Captain America or Shield Agent number six, I'm gonna choose Cap every time. Now, some areas they could expand on is it might be cool to have like a smaller, lesser person like an Ultrabot, but I'm really excited to just play superheroes, and I'm happy that team building won't end up being a spam of low-level henchmen mobbing the board. Feel is another thing that I really liked, and I know that this is weird and people get uncomfortable talking about their feelings, but the characters in this game all feel very true to themselves on the tabletop. I really like how they blended the rules of the characters with the character's persona from the individual places they've drawn inspiration from. It feels like I'm controlling Captain America, who's willing to protect someone and assist his fellow Avengers, or Crossbones, who's really overly aggressive and he's going full bore at someone and trying to throw them around as he swings wild haymakers. In board games term, people would call this great theme. Whatever you want to call it, the game feels very true to the comics, books, movies, or whatever source material you grew up with, and I was super excited every time I got to experience that on the table. I'm also really excited about their production model. Games live and die in your local game stores. The fact that this isn't coming to Kickstarter or any direct sales, and the only way to get it is through your local game store is something I'm very, very happy about. Okay, now to be honest, I'm not a 100% fanboy. I try to be objective about things, and there are things I'm not 100% sold on. We can start with the movement tool. I talked about it a bit before, and it can feel oddly restrictive coming from the open world of tape measures. Again, I know that I need more games with it to really tell, but it's just something on the list that I'm not sold on. Next up is power levels. I haven't played nearly enough to know, and to be honest, the game I'm playing is only about 50% of the game, but without factions or teams, I understand and can see the worry that a few models will clearly be the strongest, and because you don't have any list building restrictions, I'm a little afraid that instead of the open diversity that the game format seems to foster, that we might end up with the same heroes being played over and over again. Again, this is a 100% unfounded fear, it's just something that did come to mind. Lastly is dice math. In the words of Andrew Yang, I'm an Asian man that likes math. But that being said, there isn't a great way for me to express the dice math odds in this game quickly. I know there's a lot of tryhards out there who are going to want clear odds for rolling, and it's just, 
not something super easily available. I'm working on like changing maybe over to binomial coefficients or maybe even like a Gaussian curve in the future to get a visualization for it. If you're really big into stats and probability, again, I'd love to talk to you more about this. Reach out to me over social media. Hey, I'd even love to have you on the podcast if you're willing. So that wraps up the things I'm excited about and a little trepidatious about with the game itself so far. There is one more thing I really want to talk about. This is their home run swing of Marvel Crisis Protocol, in my opinion, and that is additional play modes. They've already mentioned something that sounds kind of like a raid mode, where multiple players would work cooperatively together to take down a giant baddie. Immediately, my brain thought of like Sentinels, Damaru, Thanos, Galactus even. It could be a super amount of fun, and it could get some really cool, epically sized miniatures on the table, and who doesn't love that? Co-op modes would also make teaching a tabletop game to new players quick, easy, and much more forgiving. It grants an easier avenue than the tried and trusted tabletop mantra of, get ready to lose a lot of games as you learn this. I'd love to be able to play co-op games with my younger daughters or friends who don't normally play tabletop games. And again, I also think it is a great avenue for someone to come into the game, not get absolutely punished, learn the mechanics, and then eventually play it in a versus mode. All in all, I'm very excited about Marvel Crisis Protocol, and I've thoroughly enjoyed all my testing. The game isn't without concerns, but nothing in life is. I'm excited to continue testing the game more and producing more content about it. For more information about the game itself, be sure to check out AtomicMassGames.com or the newly created Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Marvel Crisis Protocol. And that wraps up my thoughts on Marvel Crisis Protocol, and with it, episode one of Across the Bifrost. I want to thank you all for listening. Hopefully my ramblings help you as you consider if the game is something you want to continue to invest your hard-earned time and money into. If you like the podcast, I love a like and a follow over on Twitter at Sung Su and on Facebook at CO Wargaming. In addition, for Across the Bifrost, I've taken advice from the podfather himself, Jay Larson, and created a Patreon for it. The hope of this Patreon are to offset the production costs and to keep the content flowing. After all, the spice must flow. You can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash across the Bifrost and see the full details of what's going on over there. The TLDR of the Patreon is there are two tiers. There's a $1 tier, which grants you immediate access to the podcasts. Non-Patrons are going to have to wait a week. It also allows Patrons to enter into our prize raffles and Patreon-exclusive after-the-credits scenes each episode. For $2 a podcast, you get all the Tier 1 benefits. In addition, you get access to our private Discord channel, where you can vote on upcoming episodes and ask questions to be answered on the pod. My goal in creating these tiers was to still keep my content free for those who can't or don't want to contribute, but to provide clear benefits to those who are willing to support the time and energy I put into these creations. Again, full information can be found on patreon.com slash across the Bifrost, and thank you so much for even considering it. For future episodes of Across the Bifrost, we'll almost always have a guest, and the pod should be coming in right around about 45 minutes to an hour. For episode 2, I'm, I'm thrilled to have Charles, aka Omnis, on from Blight Makes Right, a Legion-focused War Machine Hordes podcast, and the newly founded channel Omnis Protocol. We'll be talking about things from a competitive gamer standpoint and what we're looking for in a game. We'll also break down the rules a good bit deeper than I did today, and we'll talk about some specific interactions that caught our eye. We'll dive into the fluff and provide some launching points for people who want to learn more about the world of Marvel, but maybe don't know where to start or possibly are a little intimidated. Lastly, we'll wrap up with some cosplay talks. I'm really excited about this conversation, and I hope you tune in for that one as well. So, until next time, happy gaming, everyone.
hey, did you actually make it this far? You can tell you're a Marvel fan. Anyway, I just wanted to take a second to apologize. Due to some construction and uh, scheduling snafu on my part, I wasn't able to record in the normal recording studio, and instead I was in my office. And you can definitely tell. There's a little bit of white noise in the background. You can tell when the HVAC kicks on. I tried as hard as I could to clean it up, minimize it. I can definitely hear it when I listen through the pod, and it drives me crazy. I also said like a whole lot. I don't know what's going on with the California Valley Girl. Definitely not something I normally try to channel in my life. Anyway, thank you again for listening. Cheers. Take care, everyone.